Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi and today I welcome Shireen Askui. She is a poker player, a Survivor All-Star, a tech executive. And now to add to that list of credits, she's the creator of Floptimal, a new poker training program which she created with poker pros Russell Thomas and Jesse Sylvia. So The Grid is all about the collision of the universal, the theoretical aspects of poker, with the hyper-specific and how a hand is situated into the theory of poker itself. And so I'm really happy that today Shireen chose a hand that does both. It is a hand that she loves for its chameleon theoretical properties and a hand that she played at a live tournament when she was just getting super into poker. Five, six suited. Hello, Shireen. Welcome to The Grid and thank you for tackling this combo. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on here. I'm really excited to talk to you about all of this. Do you choose a 5-6 suited or 6-5 suited? It's funny. I usually say 5-6 suited, but I feel like poker players have a thing of saying things in like descending order. And so I try to like correct. I guess it's usually more about like the flop that they care about the descending order, but I still try to say everything in that order to get myself into more of the poker lingo. I think low suited connectors, a lot of poker players say it the way that you intuitively said it. 5-6 suited. I really hear both ways. Either is good, but tell us a little bit about this particular hand and why it's intriguing to you. And of course, the hand that took place at the win. Yeah. So um, just five, six suited on its own as a hand um, really interests me because I got through building Floptimal, I got super into um, poker solvers and, and just writing sims myself over the last year. And so I live and breathe pre-flop sims every day. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so you find these like like deep tree spots where really around the five um, vertical on the grid where like ace five suited starts doing interesting things. King five suited, like, like ace five, at least you can get like the, the wheel straight. So yeah, so you get like the ace five because you get the straight, but even king five suited starts doing interesting things in, in deep spots when you're defending it from the big blind. Um, and it goes all the way down to five, six suited, four, five suited where let's say you are facing this like multi-way all in call, all call, call, call. And what, like the way that the pre-flop um, ranges change as more and more people call and all in, right. Is that it like gets fewer and fewer hands get to call. And it really comes down to like Queens and up. Uh, you even start losing your ace Kings. You get to a point where it's just aces. You can only call with aces. And then the solver does a really interesting thing, which is, after that point, it starts adding in four, five suited, five, six suited, in particular, five, six suited. And so like, 
it's just one of these crazy spots. Like, and what it actually means is basically like, if you are, if you're ever like super deep and, or like, like you're like the very big stack at a table and then there's all this crazy action going on and you somehow wake up in position with five, six suited, it's a call. And, um, maybe it's not a call depending on how you want to live your life. But like, if you're YOLOing it and going for it, and if you're a believer in the solvers, like then it's a call. And for that reason, I refer to these hands, mainly five, six suited, but also like four, five suited, sometimes six, four suited, very occasionally eight, 10 suited pops in there, but these low suited connectors as the God hands. And so that's why I chose it. And that's why I chose a hand history playing it as well from when I was totally new to poker. I love that. And you particularly sent me a screenshot of a situation, Chip EV, of course, this is not with ICM, but there was 12 big blinds. Right. And um, in this sim, the under the gun, and this is eight handed with a big blind nanny. Yes. So the under the gun goes all in. Under the gun one, low jack and high jack all call this 12 big blind shove. And I assume this is assuming that everybody has 12 big blinds or approximately. It's not taking into account the like, the potential like uh, different sizes, but that, that's still still really interesting and useful. And then you get down to the big blind and they only call. Readers at home or listeners at home can play along now. This is kind of the situation you were just describing. Queens plus, the only premium hands that call that are Queens plus and Ace King suited, which is a bit surprising. I would think that the Jacks would get in there, but apparently not. And then these hands that you just mentioned, uh, the 6-5 suited, the 6-4 suited, the 5-4 suited, the 7-5 suited, and the 6-7 suited, that's a very interesting and unusual finding. And I think it's really interesting that so many of them also include a 6, because my impression was that the 6 is always a really nice card to have because of the fact that it has like a higher straight when your opponents have like an ace and it runs out two, three, four, five. Yep, that's true too. But you actually find that like, um, and so going back to like this vertical concept that I was talking about, the six ends up being kind of a bad hand because it's like the worst, like a six is the worst ace you can have. Right. Because like the six ends up being use- useless to you in in all these other ways. It, be- it becomes more useful when you have a card that's much closer to it. But where- whereas five interacts with the rest of the board and the rest of the cards much more cleanly, I mean, but even six and like one of the, another reason why that the, these cards start showing up after all this kind of action is because, I mean, it, it just goes back to what you're saying with like the, like these low card straights on the board or whatever, but you're, but essentially like when there's that much action, it's probably because there are a lot of dead aces. There are a lot of like high pairs that are happening or a lot of high suited connectors. And so at that point you realize just card distribution wise, like what's left in the deck, you know, and like the things that are left in the deck that are more likely to hit the border are, are going to be way more likely to hit your hand and you have so many options with these kind of low suited connectors because you can get both way straights, you can get a flush, you can get, you know, you're more likely to hit pairs and trips and that kind of thing because of like what else just everybody else likely has in these kind of just weird spots. And I know it's like a, it's like a rare spot. And like you said, you know, we're talking about spots where people are going to have all different stack sizes, but I think it, it just, it speaks to the quality of the hand. And so that's what I take away from it. Not that like, one day I'm going to be in this spot where there's it's a five-way all-in and I'm going to wake up with five-six suited, but more like five-six suited is a really good hand and I think people overfold it. Got it in position, just, you know, facing an under-the-gun open and maybe one caller between you. Like, this is a very comfortable call because, like, it's... And it's fairly easy to play a post-flop, you know, given the right sizing and pot odds and whatnot. I think you're right that it's a very unusual situation. So it's not about it being practical, but it kind of 
can lead you, because it is a simplified example, it can lead you to some interesting lessons that might be applicable in more complex situations. Like even if you're teaching somebody new to poker about this, you can say, well, you know, if under the gun is only jamming pairs um, greater than six is plus in this situation, then suddenly the five gains value. And so you explain why that's true. And then they can kind of understand that instinctively and then you can like build upon it. I think it's really useful. And then of course, in um, like knockout tournament, bounty tournaments, even with like smaller bounties, you have to start thinking about these things more. Although then maybe it would change because the calling ranges would probably have more low cards as well. But still, it kind of gets you thinking for yourself about these weird things that can happen in poker. So I thought it was a great screenshot that you sent me there, which I can include in in the show notes. If people are interested in it, they can check that out. Um, But let's get into the hand that you brought today, because coincidentally, one of these hands that you call like the God hands is actually the hand that you brought that you felt like was one of the most interesting that you played story-wise. So that's a big coincidence. Tell us about when this hand took place and where you were in your poker journey. Yeah. So I had real, I was brand new to poker. I think at that point I'd been playing like around six months, somewhere between six and nine months after I played my very first event ever in poker. And I was at the win playing. It was a satellite event for their $5,300 seats, you know, seat to a $5,300 tournament. We were 40 big blinds effective. And actually, when I run through the hand, I'm going to run through it just speaking from the point of view of me at the time and like what I was thinking as I was doing these crazy things. So we're 40 bigs effective, low jack opens to 2.5, and it folds to me in the big blind. I have five, six suited, my five, six of diamonds. And at the time, because I was so new to poker, I was kind of terrified of, well, I was terrified of playing anything really. But in particular, these like these hands that have nuance to them, you know, because like I mainly like was totally on top of my shove fold ranges and my opening ranges. Like ace king is the hand I hated the most because like it's complicated and it often doesn't hit and you have to play it. You have to know what you're doing when you're playing it. So same thing, like previously I I had been folding these low suited connectors and I was put in my place about that and told, nope, got to play them. Big blind. Just got to do it. So I was unhappy with having to play this, but you know, I was brave and I did it. (laughs) So the flop comes 10, eight, seven, all diamonds. And so now I'm in this like worst spot. In my mind, I'm like, yeah, I flopped a flush, but it's this stupid low card flush. What does it mean? Where do I stand? Does he have a better flush than me? And like at this point, you know, I, I wasn't playing like range versus range. And I knew, you know, it's like, it's unlikely for him to have a flush. It's unlikely for him to have any diamonds, actually. But both of us have, because he's in the low jack. So like both of us have a lot of suited cards in our range. Um, and he also has like, you know, ace, like ace of diamonds, king of diamonds type hands in his in his hand. And there's even, there's like the straight on the board that I didn't see or care about. Because all I cared about was I have a flush. It's a super bad flush. What if another diamond comes on the board? Like, what will I do then? Like, oh, great. Well, you could hit the four of diamonds or the nine of diamonds, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, that's true. And like, I had never, still to this day, I've never had a straight flush live. And so that was also something that I was excited to happen. Then it's like, well, then I feel protected. Four card straight flush. That's not something you see very often. That actually would be a really interesting spot. But okay. Your spot is interesting too. Spoiler, that doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so at this point, so I check 100% of my range here in the big blind. He bets 50% pot. 
I was kind of surprised that he bet this big on like a, a monotone board. So I just thought like, well, I guess I'm just gonna, I'm gonna call here and like sort of slow play it and, I, and just like really, really hope the turn doesn't bring another diamond. So I just called. And then the turn came Jack X, non-diamond. I'm checking most of my range because I checked uh, and I didn't check raise flop. I just check here. And now he bets three quarters pot. And so at this point, I'm just like, all right, let's cut and run. Let's like, uh, let's just steal what's in the pot, end this hand, end my agony and move on. But, you know, we, were, we started 40 bigs effective. And so we don't actually have that much behind for me to be able to check raise. Like I could potentially check jam here. And I also, you know, my bet sizing, like I don't know, post-flop bet sizing at this point. So I check raise and I go just over two. I think I like, I check raised him like two and a half X. It was this weird, awkward amount. It left me with something like 15 bigs behind. With so many bigs in the pot, because you guys started with yeah, yeah like 50, 50 something. So you have less um, half pot size bet behind on the river. Yeah. That's why it's like, yeah, it's awkward. I don't know why I didn't just jam it because my intention really was to just like take the pot, hope he folds and move on. But he like snap calls. And I was like, okay, interesting. And it, so at this point, like because of the way that he snap called, I just felt like, okay, like he's very confident. It's confident about something. And so when the river comes like a total brick, at that point, what I felt like was, look, like now that the board has run out the way that it has, I either I've got it or I don't, you know, like I'm getting it all in with this hand if I have to. And I only have 15 bigs left behind. So you know what? Let's just see what happens. But like the other, the main thing going through my head though, was like, if I check here, he's going to jam. And I know that because of the confidence with which he like, you know, snap called me at the turn and something that I often faced when playing live was like, I never hid that I was new to poker and I'm really chatty and like people, men in particular, were just incredibly confident all the time that like, they were just so certain they could beat me, you know, like regardless of what hands I had or whatever. And this guy, I got that feeling from like, oh, this guy is just certain he can beat me. So I check, he shoves, I call, and he had King Jack off without the diamond. <laughs> and then he actually stood up out of his seat and like said, no, you don't. <laughs> when you showed the hand, he was like, no, you can't have that. Like, you don't have that. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what he meant. People don't expect me, this new player and like a woman, like to be playing five, six suited, I guess. I mean, I don't know what his expectations was. I just know what he said. And he stood up and said, no, you don't. What year was this again? That was 2019. If he was surprised that you had that, I don't think he'd be surprised that you called it pre-flop. I would think that he would be surprised that you didn't raise it on the flop and that he was therefore like discounting that more from your range. I mean, listen, it's hard to get in the mind of somebody who's who like berates their opponent who's new to poker after the hand because like, that's not me, but I feel like if, if I were the type of person to do that, I would be like frustrated because like somehow I like thought, oh, new player, they're going to get excited. They hit a flush, so they're going to immediately check raise, right? Uh, maybe, maybe that's what he meant. That's totally true. And you're, because then I was going to say, yeah, but like when you, typically when you see a check call, check, a check call flop, check raise turn, like these are spots that are incredibly nutted, right? Like I have faced very few bluffs from like the check call, check raise. Then again, I think it's also possible, like looking at a new player doing that, like the reaction could also just be like, she doesn't know what the F she's doing. And so, so back to your point, like, you're right. Like he's probably thinking, 
yeah, I probably would have like gotten excited, jammed flop, and then like I shouldn't be here with the flush. But who was this player? Uh, he was a pro. I remember that. Seven, eight, ten, three diamonds, jack X to a turn check raise, a nine makes a straight. And then he, he's betting the 15 bigs on the river with uh, King Jack off, hoping that you call with what? Maybe he really thinks you're a new player and that you have ace 10. I mean, it's just, it's very, it's very baffling. Maybe he thought I would like fold to his 15 big blind shove on the river there. Oh, you like, mean he, it's a bluff? Yeah, I don't know. Because I, I think that like the certainty that I felt was just that I felt like he just felt he could beat me, you know? And whether it was like with a bluff or with his hand, I mean, all he has is King Jack off there, right? Like, he can't think that he's going to get called by worse. I mean, I, I guess, like, to your point, if I have Ace-10, like, I mean... It's hard to figure out exactly what he's going for, but maybe you're right. Maybe he was trying to get you to fold. God, a nine? No, it's... it's a nine? No, you, right. wouldn't, you wouldn't fold that as a new player. There's no way you're folding a straight there. It's just really interesting because yeah. he is obviously very frustrated after the hand and certainly no professional poker player sees themselves as getting upset at a new player. Was he a Survivor fan? No. A lot of people don't recognize me from Survivor because I look very different. In particular, my hair is way different than it was on the show. And um, and people just don't have a good memory for anyone other than like the top five Survivors ever. Yeah, and so, and I don't like to bring it up um, all the time at the table because then like everyone just starts asking me questions like, just dull questions about Survivor rather than letting, you know, the course of conversation go where it may. <laughs> like, On one hand, people in Survivor look like so dewy because of like, I guess it's very moist there. So a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people look really, really, really youthful and energetic. But, you know, I <laughs> talked to Survivor producer once because they were interested in like a chess player going on let alone make a fire. I've barely gone camping a day in my life. I was like, this, this is probably not for me. But I did have a couple conversations and I was asking them about like makeup and like hair and contacts and all these things. And I was surprised. I always just assumed that like they Hollywooded it up a little bit and there was like hair and makeup and you didn't see it, but apparently not. No, nothing. Um, I mean, people get to wear their contacts and stuff and you get like your, there's like a medical bin for you to take your prescriptions and they give you like sunblock. But no, like your hair actually, after about being out there for about a week, like your hair gets kind of nice on its own. And like, as long as you're bathing in the ocean regularly, like you don't like, you don't smell bad at all. Yeah. And everyone gets like a little bit tan. In fact, like, I think, you know, people who tend to find themselves wearing too much makeup, like now you just have nature's makeup on your face. Like everybody just looks way better out there. Also like, and then you're starving. And so you're, you know, you got these high cheekbones and yeah, people just look good. You look great on camera too. I'm sure you look good on in real life as well. But it's just, it's amazing to me. Now, whenever I see it, I'm like, wow, people look so hot out there. What's going on? No <laughs> no makeup, no hair, just, yeah. just the beauty of nature, as you say. It's amazing. But also most of those people are cast, you know, historically were cast for their looks. So like, that's why a lot of people are so good looking out there. That's not why I was cast. But you did look good out there regardless. <laughs> but you you were cast for your brains, you're in tech, you were part of the season where it was blue collar, white collar, and no collar, which was like free spirits versus executives versus people who worked in like construction and other jobs with their hands. Yeah. And I watched a couple episodes. Including a drug dealer on the blue collar tribe. Oh, really? I would think that would go into no collar. I think they labeled him a construction guy because he had like a Boston accent and, and like was buff, but no, he's... He was a drug dealer. That definitely okay. should be in the no collar. That that's an odd choice for sure. You know, I think that was before um, weed was as 
legal in as many states. I mean, things have changed so yes. much in the past six years. It's awesome. I mean, I'm sorry. Well, I guess not everybody believes that, but m many people. Whoa, spoilers. <laughs> Are you religious, Jennifer? <laughs> The, the funny part is I I don't I have a little kid so I don't I don't smoke any weed ever really but many of my friends do and I'm excited that like they get to I'm too much of a workaholic man I should smoke more weed it's like people have told me I need to get like those CBD gummies <laughs> yeah. I'm here always trying to like work until like one in the morning I'm like yeah no, whatever but um seriously about the survivor it interests me that you were famous um, in your season for a couple things. You uh, were infamously bullied. Um, and then you also had this amazing speech. So you had one of the most famous speeches in Survivor history, which is kind of crazy because there's been, what, how many seasons? Like 50 or something? Yeah, there's been 40 seasons now. 40 seasons. Okay. That's a lot of speeches. Your famous speech was in the finale, right? There's a jury at the end, the last several people to get voted out get put on a jury. And then those people come and ask questions of the finalists to determine who they want to vote to win. And yeah, that's the speech you're referring to. Well, let's start with the bullying because, you know, it sounds like in poker as well, it's something that comes up for a lot of women, for a lot of new players, period, um, for a lot of players who don't fit the mold of a professional, you know. Players who are potentially older, I hear, often feel this way, that they get bullied at the table, that people think that they're not as good as other players. So um, tell me about how that experience in Survivor might have like given you um, more preparation for being a new player in poker. Yeah, I mean... If you've ever played poker with me at the table, like I'm very chatty. I like to get to know everyone and like, you know, talk and tell stories and, and hear other people's stories. Like otherwise we're just sitting there for hours. And I was like that on Survivor as well. Like I, I was just like, I was there to have a good time. I mean, I was there to play the game also, but like, there's so many things going on that you don't see in terms of just like, you know, like the mechanics of the show and filming and like all the stuff that happens before day one, like you're together for over a week with all these people um, observing each other, but not talking. And but then like, once you actually get to filming, like typically, you know, and like after day, like day one is crazy because you're building your shelter and collecting coconuts, and all that stuff. But after that, a lot of the time you're just sitting around doing nothing and you know, that's boring. And so I'm the kind of person who tries to make fun, fun for everyone, make fun for myself. Like, I don't want to just sit there and be bored. What's the point? Like we're literally on an adventure of a lifetime. And I was a huge super fan of, of the show when I went on to, so I knew a lot about the show and, and most of the other people on my cast actually weren't big fans of the show. So they didn't really know what to expect. So like at my starting beach, we had howler monkeys, for example. And like, I would go off in the jungle and like follow them because like, you know, you're in the middle of a national geographic show live basically. And there were these two howler monkeys who started having sex in front of us. And I'm like, Everyone in my tribe thought it was totally disgusting and they didn't want to know anything about it. But it was like this whole mating ritual that was, was fascinating and it was hilarious. Okay, so you have these like, you have a male and female howler monkey that basically the dude is, um, is just eating, chewing on leaves or whatever. And they have basically disproportionate ball sacks that are bright, shiny white. It looks like a, it looks like a clove of garlic kind of. And so they'll be jumping from trees to trees and this like, huge bright white beacon of ball sack is like hangs behind them so this dude's flying from tree to tree i'm like wow that's fascinating and he lands he starts eating 
And then a woman kind of chases after him and, and she gets there and she moves the food and it moves his hand out of his face and sticks her butt right in it. She's like, there's my butt. Eat this instead. And <laughs> so he gets kind of into it, into it. And so then he like, kind of, he's like, all right, let's fuck. So then he starts like banging her. And then he's like, nah, I'm going to go back to food. And he pushes her a couple pumps, pushes her away, like goes back to the food. And she's like, nah, nah, man. Like we gotta, we got work to do here. She jumps around, knocks the shit out of his hand again, and then like puts her ass in his face again. And this happens like a couple of times, maybe like the fourth or fifth time. Finally, like they get it on, like, and they, like, they, they stick with it and it doesn't even last that long. It's like done when it's done. Like, he's just like, oh, wow, it's done. And she literally pushes him the fuck out the way and then just heads out, just goes off. She like got the deed, got him to sow his seed. She's out. So this is the kind of thing that like, that's like literally want, like the only thing that happened to us our first 10 days on this fucking show. Like, that's exciting. You should be excited about that. And nobody on my tri- my tribe thought I was a disgusting person who couldn't possibly have like a job in real life. Like who would employ such a disgusting person who would watch monkeys have sex? God forbid. So that's the kind of person that I was. Uh, and it didn't gel with the people on my season. And so they just were really mean to me. And like, like often they wouldn't even talk to me, but when they would talk to me, it was just like, I mean, levels of condescension. I don't see in my daily life at all. The bad shit that I see happening, like, like you don't see. It's like the corporate espionage or whatever. Shit that happens behind closed doors. Nobody like berates somebody to their face in my world anymore at my age. Oh, yeah. It's more like the passive-aggressive email. No exclamation points. Right. <laughs> yeah. With no exclamation <laughs> points. I still had a great time on Survivor despite all that. Like, there, I had a lot of really difficult experiences because I was perpetually bullied and put down and yelled at by these people. But you better believe that when I got to that final tribal council and it was time to give my speech, like I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder about it. And you had, and the three people in the end were Islamophobe, one of the women who enabled him and like fueled his fire of hatred against me. And then you had the one guy who actually like one time sort of stood up for me. And so it was just kind of like a great spot for me to highlight. Like I really wanted to put on display the importance of being good to people. You wouldn't believe it, but the guy who's good to people actually won my season. And did you, you voted for him, I take it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I did see that speech though, and I really, really liked, for people who don't watch Survivor, there were three people left, and Shireen had been knocked out, so she was one of the jurors. And she had to decide along with her other jurors who was going to win the million dollar prize and the honor of winning it. And so she said that, you know, this, this person mercilessly bullied me and this person like came to my aid, but that it couldn't be the only factor in her decision because, you know, it's also a game and you have to choose the best games player. And yeah, I love that because, you know, that's the the spot that so many poker and chess players are in, that they, they have to play fair. If they see a friend who isn't doing something that's fair, they still have to call them out on it. Obviously jurors in the, in the real world, <laughs> which apparently we're just on jury duty. So this is a very appropriate. Right. <laughs> Did you mention to the jurors that you were like a survivor juror? I feel like you should have gone down on the jury. <laughs> Did that come up? Well, so not this time, but actually like shortly after I was on Survivor, I made it onto a jury. Like I got like I and during jury selection. So I'd literally just gotten back from filming my second season. My first season just finished airing. And so my second season was about to be on TV in like a couple of weeks. So during jury selection, I told them like I was just on Survivor and I'm going to be on again. And like they didn't care. And so they still put me on this trial. And the, the trial went on for like about a week. And 
the officer for the prosecution, like the 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 cop who arrested the defendant, like so the 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 cop who was this trial is on because this cop basically wants charge like criminal charges pressed against this defendant. That cop was a huge Survivor fan, and one day during a lunch break, he came and found me and just started chatting me up and started asking me about. He's like, "You're Shireen from Survivor." Oh my gosh. I love Tony. Tony's a cop too. Tell me about Tony. Like, I want to hear everything. Yeah, like my guys and I, we love survival. And the crazy thing about this is then the whole trial got declared a mistrial because this cop like couldn't keep in his pants and like with his like survivor fandom and just like had to come and ask me questions. Oh no, poor guy. Did He must have gotten in, did he get in trouble? I don't think so. I mean, like the, the judge was really mad and like it obviously was a huge waste of taxpayer dollars. And mm-hmm. like, you know, for my part, I was up, I, I said during jury selection and I said it because I know that people can end up being like fanatical and, and act, you know, illogically just because of their survivor fandom. And that's what happened in the case of this cop. No. And the crazy thing is the cop knew this would happen. He knew that this would happen, that if he was seen talking to me, that it would likely end in a mistrial. And he was just like, so eager to ask me survivor questions that he did it anyway. Wow, that's funny. Yeah. I've never gotten picked for jury duty, but I do think that there's a problem with thinking that somebody who's had emotional experiences related to whatever's being judged is no longer eligible or, or is not capable of being unbiased. Yeah. Because like my last time I went in for jury duty, I was hoping to get out of it because I had stuff to do. Mm-hmm. But then I found out it was like a um, sexual assault trial. Then I changed my mind because I was like, you know, hearing about these things and I also have a personal experience of sexual assault and harassment. So I feel like it's important for my voice to like be able to judge this fairly. But they, they took me off the jury because of that. And also because of my writing about women's empowerment. And then I was actually, it was, it was funny. I went in thinking like, can't wait to get out. Yeah. And then when I was kicked off the jury, I was like, that's messed up. Yeah. Like, like, have you seen the statistics of women who've been harassed or assaulted? Like, you can't just take them all off the jury. Right. Like the whole point of being like a jury of your peers, like that would just be impossible. What you're like going and cherry picking all the women who haven't ever experienced that. Like, okay, good luck with that. So uh, any tips though on like what we can do, whether it's poker or tech, to kind of like discourage a culture of bullying? Because it seems like, it, you know, there's a sense that it's the Lord of the Flies, that it is inherent to many of our natures. Yeah. But that if the right people are in power, it often is never actualized. So the the problem with the survivor scenario is that like, you don't really, like you're kind of disincentivized to stand up for other people. And, or like, it feels like you're disincentivized to stand up for other people, let alone to stand up for yourself. Like you have to eat a lot of shit to go far on that kind of show. If you don't look like Captain America, you know, because people are constantly judging you like physically, how much are you going to like help or hurt us in challenges? Most of which, especially, you know, pre-merge are physical. But when you see other people fighting, that's always good for you. Or it feels like it's good for you because now like you're not the next one to be voted out. Like people are going to want to vote out one of them. They're going to want to vote out each other. And the funny thing is like both two-time survivor winners, this woman, Sandra, and this guy, Tony, they're very in your face, vocal, don't put up with shit. Sandra in particular, like she was picked on a fair bit on all of her seasons and she just shoots right back. And I think that the circumstances have to be right for you, but it really worked for her. And it turns out that just standing up for yourself is something that by the time that she made it to the end, people thought that they were dragging a weak person to the end, somebody that everyone picked on and made fun of because she sucked at challenges or whatever. But because she had been so vocal the whole time and against like against assholes that everyone hated, she ended up being like the, the beacon of good people. Nobody would say, oh, Sandra, she's such a good person. But actually, she's the one person who 
didn't let dicks get away with it. She always went after people who were being dicks. And that's why she won. And that's why she does so well at the game. What I really enjoy about poker is poker is also a lot like tech. There isn't a whole lot of diversity. It's like a bit of a boys club. But the difference is at the poker table, when somebody says something or does something that I might find offensive, like they're not my coworker. And I'm not playing a game for a million dollars where I'm afraid of like how to have the proper response. I can just be like Sandra from Survivor and I just shoot right back. And I'll just call a dick a dick at the table. And if I see people being dicks to other people, I do the same thing. I try to like, I do get involved. I do think that I really firmly believe that if you're nice to people at the table, then people are going to want you around and that there's all kinds of like implicit bias at play for people being friendly to one another versus like if there's one guy at the table who's just an asshole, he's unpleasant to be around. We're all just going to want to bust that guy. Yeah, I think that poker is like actually just such a rife environment for fighting because like real money is at stake during this game mm -hmm. and people one up you and they can needle you while doing it. And, and I think to some extent, a lot of that can, can even be fun. Like the needling, as long as it's like, you know, I mean, like what your line is depends on who you are. But like, I think that for me, it's pretty clear, like, am I being mean to a person or am I just like having fun and we're having fun together? And I think that poker is, it's great because it's, um, it's also an environment where you can say whatever the fuck you want to anybody else. So if someone tries to pull some shit on you, it's very easy to just be very like open and, and call shit out. Yeah, it's harder sometimes when people are, are new to the game. I think that's when they're, the bullying can be like the most difficult because a lot of times they're bullying like the way you play. And so insecurities can come in and you have a choice whether to be, to be kind of friendly or to be adversarial yeah and i think that it, what often happens is the person who's the most extroverted the natural leaders kind of set the tone and that's why i have a very mixed feeling sometimes about live poker because um, i can be extroverted but it depends on the day and then it's like really determined by the most charismatic or extroverted person at the table and they kind of set the tone and sometimes that person is like an awesome you know person with a great personality who just like tells jokes and asks everybody about where they're from. And sometimes it is the person who's being a jerk and berating everyone and, you know, getting to the wrong table and having to reverse that is sometimes just too exhausting. And you just end up picking silence, you know, yeah. and just trying to like downplay that person and just like, you know, make it quiet. And I just feel like the more people like you, the better the environment is. Because I felt like one of the most interesting parts of your season of Survivor and its concept was the fact that they were introducing um, class. And in your famous speech, you mentioned that you made a million dollars by the time you were 25 years old, which inherently changes everything about the competition, right? So not only did you make a million dollars at a young age from your tech experience, but you also have this resume that allows you to make further millions in your career. So winning the million dollars in Survivor is not the same prize and your reputation on Survivor is actually way more important. So the incentives are completely differently aligned. And of course that happens in poker all the time too, that you have people who are, you know, playing over their heads. And then you also have extremely wealthy people who might be really competitive. It's an interesting season because it was cast very differently than other seasons are because like it was season 30 was originally, so that, that was the season that I was on um, season 30. And it was originally supposed to be an all-star season because it was, you know, their 15 year, the show's 15 year anniversary, a landmark season, but they had just 
Don, season 28 was Kagiyan, the one with Tony and Spencer and cast, like all this like huge famous cast for people who are Survivor fans. And it had done so well that they decided, that CBS executives decided, rather than doing another, an all-star season, which often fall flat because in all-star seasons, there's like so much gaming and stuff, or sorry, pre-gaming and stuff that happens, like pre-game alliances mm-hmm. that shape the outcome of the game. And then you end up getting like, yeah, like it's harder for them to tell the story. It can be less entertaining. Whereas like with, with new players, it's like, it's brand new and it's fresh and there's like more opportunity for like good organic storylines to come out. And so, so they said, okay, fine. Well, you know, we want season 30 to be all new players, but it's got to really hold up to this like season 30. It's got to be fireworks. And so they also intentionally cast more extreme personalities and more contentious people. And then also because of the theme, like the themes aren't meant to be real. They're meant for like, the themes are all about perception. So like I said, like there was a drug dealer in the blue collar tribe and then they moved a no collar guy is really just a trust fund baby. Never had a job in his entire life. Basically they moved him to the white collar tribe. That guy, his job title was assistant to a talent agent at a Hollywood talent agency. Because like for six months, he was a coffee boy to some executive at CAA (laughs) that his like parents like hooked him up with. Oh my God, the exaggeration's amazing. (laughs) I did watch the first episode of that season and I remember that it was like worked for one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. Like that's a freaking heck of an exaggeration, wow. Yeah, no, literally was just like an assistant for like under six months, like didn't like working, quit. I mean, just, you know, the other thing that's interesting, though, about this is that, like, if Willie Galt had actually made the season, then, in fact, all of the people of color were on the white collar tribe. The only Jewish person on the season was on the white collar tribe. And then you had the entire blue collar tribe was white and the entire no collar tribe was supposed to be white. And like the the intro speech that Jeff Probst gave us, like when we landed on the island, was that like white collar people are evil and that like we're like too like ambitious and competitive and that like whereas white collar people are like the salt of the earth and carry this country and like the no collar people are the artists and like they bring joy to this world and white collar people just step on all of them. Oh my gosh, that's really terrible. I mean, another thing that in, has increased is like consciousness of these issues as in addition to like weed being legal everywhere. <laughs> I wonder if there's a connection there. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, I feel like they they catch that today, you know, that that's like really yeah. problematic. But anyway, I want to talk a little bit more about Floptimal, which as I mentioned in the introduction, is a product that you um, just or are currently releasing. And it is a really stunning new pre-flop and flop, how, how would you call it? Training tool? Yeah, like a study tool. Sometimes we call it like a pre-flop simulator. I like to think of it as a collection of interactive visualizations that are very colorful. Yeah, I really was drawn to that because, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, the concept of the grid is like this collision between story and theory. And I thought that your focus on the user experience was really beautiful in this. So it's a lot of similar information that's out there about pre-flop ranges, optimal pre-flop ranges based on uh, Nash equilibriums. But what you do is you present them in a little bit of a different way. So when did this idea come about? I got into poker through Run It Up Reno, um, which is put on by Jason Somerville. I'm really lucky that that's the way that I got in. And I got in because like they, you know, have like a survivor relationship. I was a survivor player and I got to meet like all these like cool, big poker players. And that's how I became friends with Jesse. And he just like, as a friend was coaching me for free. And like, he had access to all these crazy tools. 
some of which were really expensive and others weren't, but like there were so many and they were super informative, but like it started this conversation between us of like, how come all of poker tech looks like it's, you know, 1990s windows, MS-DOS style? <laughs> Do poker players use modern technology? <laughs> like, How did this end up this way? And like, you know, like, like some of these products, I loved them, but I'm like, why is it so ugly? Why do they use this color here? It's absurd. And it's funny because like at first, Jesse and like my other poker friends were like, what are you talking about? It's amazing. And it's like, it's like, it's so user-friendly. And then I like, but you know, this is what I do as a job. What I do in my career, how I became successful is like, I'm just really good at usability stuff. So I'll look at an app and I, I can tell you everything that sucks about it right away. But I was just extremely negative about it. I was like pointing out all these things. And Jesse was like, oh yeah, that does really suck. And like, he's like, here are the things that suck about it for me. And he wanted different ways of like visualizing things. And then he brought Russell in and that's how I met Russell. And just like these conversations sort of led to like, we should just make something that we like, that like hits that like, where we visualize the data in the ways that we want to see it. Also, like it's built on really good technology and like it's user-friendly, it's fast it's simple. Like it's pretty to look at. Like that was a big thing too, is like, I had to look at this stuff all day to study and like, can it be better looking? <laughs> I was the beginner and they were coaching me. And like, this is the tool that they were going to use to coach me. And Jesse had started a stable. And so he wanted tools to help coach the stable also. That's kind of how we, I guess, honed in on preflop. There's like this traditional standard way of visualizing ranges in there. And then we branched out from that like in these other ways that we wanted to see things, for example, how to play a hand from any position at any stack size. So just like pivoting the data in a different way, same exact data, but now you're looking at just a single hand. What do you do with it in all these different positions and all these different stack sizes? And you can see how it changes. And when you see these changes, so many patterns emerge and those patterns are how you learn poker. I'm a computer scientist. And so I have this like strong math, math background. And I remember like people would always talk about like, like memorizing preflop charts and they like memorize the odds of different people having different kinds of hands and making different kinds of hands. And for me, like in technology, we don't, my memory is shit probably in part because I drink too much, but also in large part, because like I'm a technologist, I build things to memorize for me so that I don't have to, like, that's the whole point of our future phones. Right. So like I'm very against memorizing and I know that that works for people and it's like a different style. But for me, what I love about what we're doing with Floptimal is like, we make it easy for you to see the different patterns in the data. And like that tells a story and that story is what teaches you how to play. One of the things I really like, because I love colors, I love bright colors. I love purple and pink and red. And um, you have this blueprint by position where you show uh, different stack size. And then you talk about the position at which you would start going all in with it if it's a short stack size or start raising with it at deeper stacks. Yeah. This is really pretty. I love how there are all these different colors and it is definitely the kind of thing where you can imagine somebody maybe recalling more things because they see it. Yeah. What I love about that grid in particular, other than just the colors, is that is that it's all in one. And so you have the entire shove fold stack for any big line level in like one chart. It's funny because like, so in consumer tech, like Floptimal has a ton of hovering states on there. Anytime you move your mouse, like a new thing hovers and shows you new data. And in consumer technology, that's typically something that we really don't do and that we shy away from because in most other circumstances, it's actually just not worth changing out the data and showing the data so dynamically. 
But like poker is this a rare example of when you actually do want that because then you can do these really fast comparisons. Like how does five, six compare to four five? How does it compare to, to four, six? You can have it on five, six, but then like mouse over even like Jack 10, even those quick comparisons help you learn the differences between the quality of these hands and how to play them and from where. Do you think there's any other way that people might ultimately study poker outside the grid? Because it seems like now everybody's studying poker using grids. Is that like a custom or do you think it like had to be that way? I don't think it needs to stick with the traditional hand grid, but I think that, you know, like this is why like on our site, we have a couple different kinds of grids, but like the hand grid for no limit hold'em, certainly it's so good at showing patterns. Grids inherently are good for learning poker because poker has like so much underlying math to it, like to the reasons behind playing different hands in certain spots. And again, like we, maybe we don't always know what those reasons are. But when we visualize them, we can backtrack and figure it out. And I just think that anything that's that mathematical in its like foundation inherently does really well in this, in various grid-like formats where you can visualize patterns. And for you, you mentioned to me that, you know, you've obviously studied a lot of poker in the creation of Floptimal. So how's that going to affect when you get back on to the felt? Are you going to be you know, incorporating all of the, because I'm sure you actually played with a lot of the products out there in order to inform your own. Yeah. So game theory and poker is something you've been working on a lot the last couple of years. And when you start playing again, how's that going to affect you? The thing that I'm going to have to figure out how to balance is how to still have a strong game theory foundation in my play, but balancing that with all of the stuff that comes with playing live. So basically like your your table image and perception, which again, I guess goes back to the whole survivor thing where like the famous expression in survivor is like perception is reality. And so will my table image change once I go back now that I am so much more confident? I still think I'm terrible at poker, but like before I truly didn't know what I was doing. And now I know a little bit, you know, like now I know what I'm doing in a lot of spots. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that's where coaching never really goes away. Like you can use all these tools all you want, but at the end of the day, there's always going to be this personal component. Live poker is just not going to die. And so figuring out the combination of game theory and psychology in those spots is always going to be alive and fascinating. There's so much that you gave us to talk about. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, of course, we've talked about it a lot in the conversation, but you can go to Flap Them All to um, play around with your product. And You can watch season 30 of Survivor to find you in action. And where else can we find you? Twitter, Instagram at The Shireen, right? Yep. The Shireen. And it's spelled S-H-I-R-I-N. So It's a beautiful name, Shireen. It's uh, Persian and it means sweet, like sugar sweet, not nice sweet. Love it. Shireen, thank you so much for taking up five, six suited on the grid and showing us why in practice and theory that hand fascinates you. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a lot of fun talking to you about all the things. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. They say I'm lucky Oh no, no need to bluff With all the cheap tricks
Yeah, I got talent. 